Bedoya's act was simple. It was human. Pro athletes are parents, neighbors, and members of your community. They pay taxes, they vote, and they share the desire to live in a country where they, their family, and their fellow citizens are protected and safe. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lalas, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. As you heard, we'll be talking Alejandro Bedoya's statement game, our Mossy Makes the Case segment. Mossy's going to be talking Pep versus Klopp, our Ask Alexi segment. We're going to talk some potential U.S. women's national team coaches. And in our back three, we'll be talking the departure of Rooney, but so much more. But first, joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you this week? I am good. And Alexi, we are one step closer to being whole. Uh, Luis Aguilar is joining us in the studio today. We're like a depleted team that's starting to get some injured bodies back. Wow. Uh, I am once again coming to you from the road. Uh, If you uh, follow me on Twitter, you will see that I am nestled below a glorious golden American eagle who is looking down on me in uh, in judgment. And I'm going to uh, use his his power uh, to uh, give you this podcast today. I'm on the East Coast. Uh, I was in D.C., our nation's capital, this weekend for MLS. Uh, and if you watched that, you saw a Philadelphia Union just crush D.C. United. It's so much fun to be in D.C. I'm going to be there again this weekend uh, and to walk around uh, D.C. Obviously, you, Mossy, I know you're a, a historian and uh, you love history and you love cities with history and you cer- certainly can't go wrong when it comes to D.C. I walked down to the White House and Walked around the mall and walked over to see uh, Mr. Lincoln and uh, all the different places. It's just so much fun. And it's, it's amazing how that city is laid out. Even when it's 100 degrees, it's fun. Uh, how that city is laid out and the sight lines and the planning that went into that city. And from an architectural standpoint and obviously from a historic standpoint, it's all uh, it's fun. What did you do this weekend, Mr. Mossy? Some work. I covered the uh, Dortmund-Bayern-German uh, Super Cup match. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. Uh, work with your buddy Rob Stone on that one. And then the rest of the weekend, relaxing, went to the beach, a little hiking, uh, kind of enjoying uh, the last days of tranquility here because once the Bundesliga season fires up, then it's that crazy waking up at 3 o'clock in the morning virtually every Saturday and Sunday for the next nine months. So uh, it's almost we've almost arrived at that back-to-school moment. Yeah, and, and do you get that itch? And I know it's a little different when you are based in, in the U.S. and North America where our, our seasons don't overlap exactly, and therefore we're already knee-deep in an MLS season or an NWSL season. But do you get that feeling when you get into this uh, August and then late August time, that tingling feeling about the return of the majority of leagues around the world, and uh, you get that excite, excited, you said back-to-school type of feeling, uh, the, the promise of a new league, of a new team, of a new player that uh, that a lot of people get? I do, yeah. I'm At Fox, I'm focused more on the European stuff, as you know, less MLS, so my calendar sort of works in sync with the European season. I, I usually work some sort of international tournament in the summer and then have a little bit of a break, downtime, and then, yeah, August is when it kind of feels, like I said, a back-to-school feeling when it starts up again. And, yeah, from the standpoint of a fan, too, I'm, I'm always very excited at the start of the new season and when these leagues fire up again. I watched a uh, lot of uh, football this past weekend, so I'm kind of getting really in the flow of it. I'm kind of ready to go. 
Well, there's, as you know, there's very little rest for the, uh, for the weary, for the, <laughs> for the wicked uh, out there, and it's just become less and less and less, both for the players and for people that cover the game. That could be good, that could be bad, but it's, uh, it's upon us again, and it's going to come like a freight train starting this week. Uh, you got EPL, and everything's just going to come, uh, uh, come behind that. So plenty of games, plenty of soccer, domestic and international for people to... Uh, you know, bite into. Uh, we will talk about all of it going forward. Uh, should we stop talking about this and get to the uh, get to the show, Moss? You ready to light this candle? Yep. Okay. As you know, each and every week we kick the pot off with Alexi Lawless's State of the Union. Yes, it's time for my State of the Union, where I look at a part of the game from an American perspective. And this week, it goes a little something like this. U.S. international and Philadelphia Union captain Alejandro Bedoya made national news Sunday night when he scored a goal, ran to the Fox broadcast field microphone, picked it up and shouted, quote, hey, Congress, do something now. End gun violence. Let's go, end quote. In the moment, Medoya wasn't picking sides. He wasn't advocating a specific solution or being disruptive. His message wasn't partisan. And apart from the evergreen time and place, stay in your lane and stick to sports debate, it wasn't really controversial. While we may have different ideas as to how to deal with the problem, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone in the country today who doesn't support ending gun violence. Bedoya's act was simple. It was human. A basic personal reaction to the pain, fear, frustration, helplessness, and desperation that so many feel reeling in the aftermath of yet more mass shootings. Yes, he used his unique and powerful platform as a professional athlete to express himself. But while sports are often an escape, They're not fantasy. They're populated by humans. Humans that are more than the 90-minute games they play. Pro athletes are parents, neighbors, and members of your community. They pay taxes, they vote, and they share the desire to live in a country where they, their family, and their fellow citizens are protected and safe. For his actions, Bedoya wasn't fined or punished by MLS, but let's be honest. In this instance, had he been, I think, no doubt, he would have had plenty of people on all sides of the political spectrum gladly willing to pay the fine for him. Because in that moment, he wasn't grandstanding, wasn't co-opting, he wasn't virtue signaling. He was just being human. All right, Mossy, that's my uh, State of the Union for the week. It was a a really interesting week, as I said, out there in D.C. for so many different, uh, different reasons, not the least of which was this this moment, this viral moment, and uh, it, went, it went all over the country and I would think all over the world uh, because of what it represented. And there was a tremendous amount of interest from the general public and from much more of the, uh, the mainstream and mass type of media out there than when, that would normally cover a soccer game and an MLS game right now. What were your thoughts uh, in the moment when you saw and heard Alejandro Bedoya do uh, what he did and say what he said? Well, it would have been interesting if he had said something like, Congress repealed the Second Amendment, something more overtly political. <laughs> he kept it general enough, like you mentioned, that it was hard for anybody to have an issue with what he said. You know, who's against ending gun violence? It's like, it's like saying end racism. So do you think that's why ultimately MLS decided against fining him? Because I know when you were first conceiving of this State of the Union monologue a couple days ago, you thought he might get some sort of token punishment. Uh, but he didn't. Uh, what did you make of the decision of MLS not to find him at all? And do you think it had to do with, with that, the fact that he kept the message general enough? 
Yeah, I thought that he would get fined and suspended because of MLS's constant uh, you know, worry about setting precedent uh, or that slippery slope type of thing happening. But then I started to think about it. And as you mentioned, I think he was very, very smart in the way that he went, went about it. And whether it was spur of the moment, I don't think it was spur of the moment. I think he had an idea that if this came to be, I'm going to do this. And the way that he framed it in the moment, because after the game, when he talked about it, uh, he went into a whole lot more detail, and it wasn't as, as I said, as partisan um, and, and general, if you will, in terms of his comments. But that was after the game. This was in the moment. This was what, what that viral clip that went around the world was. And because it, it applied to so many, and it was so difficult, if not impossible, for anybody really to argue against what he was saying because he didn't take sides, I definitely think that MLS recognized that they didn't have to do it. The other thing was, this was unprecedented. We have never had that situation. We've had microphones on the field for a long time, but for a player to seek one out, go in that moment, grab it, and they are hot mics because they're designed to pick up ambiance uh, of, of what's going on. The closer you get, the louder you're going to be. And he, he went right into the microphone, and there was no mistaking uh, where it was coming from, who it was coming from. Uh, this was unprecedented. This has never happened. Now, if this becomes a trend, I think that, I think that there would, would be more punishment, not because of what you say, but because of what you do. And I do think that people will, there will be words to the teams and to the managers of the teams to let people know that this is not something that they want to see happen going going forward from a league standpoint, certainly from a broadcast uh, standpoint. If this becomes a platform and a reoccurring type of thing, that's going to be a problem. Not because necessarily what somebody says, that could certainly be a problem, but just the act of this happening right now is not something that they want to happen on a continual basis. And that's why I think MLS... They also recognized, they read the tea leaves, they read the feeling and the sentiment out there of what was going on, and I think that they felt that they could get away with not doing anything to him, and there wouldn't be different factions and sides complaining and saying, yes, what about this, what about this, what about this? And so, and once again, it goes back to Alejandro Bedoya, who I think was really intelligent and smart, and I got a, I got a lot of time for Alejandro Bedoya over, over the years. I think he is, he is a thinker. I think he um, is a very articulate and smart person who happens to be a, a professional soccer player. Um, whether he's talking about big picture things or whether he's talking about soccer, and we had actually talked to him the day before as part of our preparation for the game. Uh, we had no indication that this was going to happen. It was all just kind of soccer type of, uh, type of stuff. But, and I've, uh, I, I got a lot of respect uh, for what he, who he is as a person and who he is as a player. Uh, so it, but, you know, as I mentioned, I was actually broadcasting the game with J.P. Della Camera. And so this happened during the game. And there's times where things that, you're not, that you don't expect happen during the game. You've got to be able to bob and weave, and certainly I'm working with a legend in J.P. Della Cameron. So the reaction that we, we both had was we turned to each other, we recognized that this was happening, and we are charged with making sure that we are giving, giving an accurate account of what's happening, in my case, giving my opinion at times of what's happening. And there, I know there are those out there that, that wanted us to do more and to say more in the moment about what had happened. I think J.P. did a wonderful job 
of giving it its due, but also recognizing that we had a job to do broadcasting a sporting event, in this case, an MLS soccer game. And he referenced what had happened. He gave it context in explaining why Alejandro Bedoya had done this. And, and, and the context was in, the, in, in, in terms of explaining to people that if anybody out there didn't know the mass shootings and, and, what, and how this had impacted our country and the people of our country. You know, I had mentioned it in passing uh, during the, the, uh, the replay type of segment talking about him making a statement on and off the field. But I know there are a lot of people out there that maybe wanted us to go further in terms of how we talked about it. And you know, as I said before, our job in that moment was to tell you what's going on in that soccer game, not just on the field, but around, but around the field. And uh, I, I think that we did it I think we did it justice and we gave it the time that it needed to. And, and let's be honest, it was pretty clear. It didn't need a whole lot of explaining. And it certainly didn't need me or J.P. Della Camera coming in and pounding people over the head with uh, what he was talking about at that moment. And that it went viral and it was the story of the game, even in a game where Alejandro Bedoya if he hadn't done that, would not have been the story. I mean, he scored a goal. It was a nice goal, but it would have been Philadelphia beating up on D.C. It would have been uh, Marco Fabian having a very, very good game, probably his best game since he's come to MLS. And that just was just blown completely away. And the only thing that anybody was going to talk about was this, uh, this viral moment of a player making a dramatic statement within the context of a sporting event and how that played and the conversation that that ensued from that. Now, I do think uh, celebrities, athletes, actors, musicians sometimes give off a vibe that because they're famous, somehow their words carry more weight when it comes to social and political issues. And I know that can turn off a lot of Americans, but I think some people go too far the other way and act like because you're an athlete, you're not allowed to have an opinion. And like you said, athletes are citizens just like anybody else. How much do you resent that whole like stick to dribbling kind of argument where that's thrown in an athlete's face whenever he does try to express an opinion about some social or political issue? I only resent it. I'm mean, not resent it. I only applaud it, I guess, when athletes are making ill-informed or uninformed type of statements. Uh, we... As I said in the State of the Union, absolutely, uh, professional athletes are members of the community. Uh, they vote. They are parents. They are children. They are all of these different things that everybody else is. But when they are talking about things um, that traditionally you don't necessarily see athletes talking about, I want it to be coming from a point of knowledge, a point of understanding, and a point of intelligence because the research ha has been done. Uh, no, they should, they should be given no more credence just because they have a much bigger microphone and platform and megaphone in some cases to not just the country but to the world, but they also they shouldn't be given any less because they happen to make their living playing a sport. That sport, you know, I, I, I often say that your, your ability on the field to be good at a, as a professional soccer player oftentimes is your ability to handle the other 22 and a half hours of your day. And while it may be a very, very important and a life-defining type of career being a professional athlete, it is a very small portion of your day and ultimately a small portion of, uh, of your life. And the things that you are doing in those other 22 and a half hours, yes, they you know, that's the, yes, they affect what happens on the field, but a lot of those things that you're doing are the things that everybody else does. 
And if somebody who is a, uh, a baker or a lawyer or somebody else talks about these things that affect us, that affect us nobody ever says, hey, stay in your lane, you're a lawyer. <laughs> you know, I would say that just doesn't happen. But I think that there is this sense of, and it's very real, and this is very fair, there is a sense of entitlement when it comes to professional athletes. There's also a sense of delusion because of the oftentimes bubble that professional athletes live in and therefore a lack of understanding of the reality of life and certainly the reality relative to other people out there. But I think certainly in this moment, what Alejandro Bedoya was, was doing was coming from a personal perspective, one that almost all, if not everyone, could understand and relate to, regardless of their, uh, of their, their political persuasion, regardless of their history or anything like that. It was a, it was a universal type of, of moment and pleading. As I, said, as I said, I think it really encapsulated and represented a lot of the the sadness and the frustration and the fear and the desperation that a lot of people, if not all people, feel regardless of where, of, of where they stand. So, I mean, that's a long answer to your question there, Mossy, but I, I don't resent it because I recognize how unique and incredibly privileged a life it is, and with that comes uh, lots of people on the outside looking at you as something less than a normal person and citizen within society and 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 athletes sometimes don't do a whole lot uh, don't help themselves a lot in terms of countering that perception from the outside now you played in the 90s most of your career took place during the bill clinton presidency which now seems like a much simpler time um, how would you compare the climate back then for athletes to wade into social and political issues as compared to today i think it's so apples and oranges because the ability for any athlete and really in any type of sport to have that platform now is so much more and some for something simple to become viral it's very easily um it's easily done in terms of the actual just the fundamental recording of it and the and the distribution of that and that was it was much more difficult to do so it it were we any less political back then i don't I don't necessarily think so. Were we any, we were less able, I think, to find moments and ways to get that out. And certainly from a consistent basis, that wasn't, that wasn't the case. Were we more reticent to, to do that, either for fear or just because that wasn't the tradition? Probably. I mean, we, we know that it's, that it's not traditionally the, the actions of professional athletes to do that, and certainly to do it in any type of consistency, um, because you know that it's it's so loaded. Even back in the day, you knew that it was it, everything was you were you would you risked coming off uh, in a you know in, in a in a partisan type of way, and therefore you would have to pick sides. And whenever you do that. You have people that are going to say say things, and I think that there was just a yeah. Why why do I want to subject myself to that? And so in that sense, people that do do that, they recognize what they're getting into, and why. That's why this I think was so different because of the smart way in which Alejandro uh, Bedoya framed it in that moment. It was it was very difficult, if not impossible, for people to 
to come at him other than, like I said, just that traditional stick to sports. I, I don't tune in to watch the soccer game to hear, uh, hear things like this, um, which, which is valid, and, but that's something that's always, always kind of been, uh, been there. But what I, what I don't think anybody could do after this was come down and say, you're right, left, up, down, <laughs> whatever, whatever side uh, you want uh, to counter. I don't think I think it was very very difficult to do something like that. This because it was uh, it, it was so universal. It'd be interesting to see going forward now what Alejandro Bedoya does becomes. Was this a one-off thing? I know it was a one-off thing from a from a microphone standpoint. I think the league will make it very very clear that's not something that they want to do. But does he? And he's always been very outspoken. But does he continue to talk about these things? And does he talk about them in a way that now starts to push him to one side or the other, push him to one solution or the other, and therefore open himself up for much more criticism as opposed uh, as opposed to this moment? What do you think he does, Masi? Let's end it here. What do you think uh, Alejandro Bedoya becomes? After this, not as a soccer player, but maybe as this conduit and this vessel for uh, opinions and statements. Yeah, I think he's now going to be looked upon as somebody that is has to sort of wade into these issues. Uh, he's kind of put himself out there as as sort of a, a you know that's going to be part of the package with him now. So uh, it'd be interesting to see how he handles that moving forward. Well, you know, he's still a soccer player and he's still playing on the number one team on the, uh, in the Eastern Conference and certainly a team that looks to not just the playoffs but possible MLS Cup. So his job, where, which we just talked so much about, as we know, is to actually play soccer. He's doing it very well. That came off a goal that he scored in a wonderful victory for the Philadelphia Union. So he's doing it on the field and he's doing it off the field. He's making us watch. He's doing things that are interesting, uh, that at times may be provocative. Who knows? But uh, ultimately, this is a person that you want to watch for what he's doing on the field and what he's doing off the field. And we will continue to watch Alejandro Bedoya and his team, the Philadelphia Union, going on. Anything else, Mossy? Nope. All right, moving on. Mossy makes the case. All right, it's time for Mossy makes the case. My good friend David Mossy is going to case for something out there in the wonderful world of soccer. What are you casing for this week, David? My case is that Pep Guardiola versus Jurgen Klopp is now the marquee coaching matchup in world football. For the first time since 2000, we begin a European campaign with Jose Mourinho not serving as a head coach anywhere. And even that season, he was an assistant at Benfica. This time, he's not involved at all, which does mean that Pep Guardiola has lost his foil of the last decade. But I do think Klopp has stepped in to fill that void. The latest chapter in their rivalry took place this past weekend. City and Liverpool played to a 1-1 draw in the Community Shield before City prevailed on penalties. Now, although they traded some barbs last week, this is obviously a very different kind of rivalry. These two men are not that confrontational. There's not going to be as much friction, as much tension, but I do think it will be fascinating nonetheless. Uh, They've crossed paths a lot in recent years, beginning in Germany when Pep was at Bayern and Klopp was at Dortmund. They now manage clearly the two best teams in England and arguably the two best teams in all of Europe. Last season, City pipped Liverpool in this epic Premier League title race, but Liverpool went on to win the Champions League. The season before that, Liverpool didn't win anything, but they eliminated City in the quarterfinals of the Champions League. So we can debate who has the upper hand, who's the better manager, who would you rather have, but I think we all agree they're both great managers. Their matches against each other are always interesting from a tactical point of view and entertaining in terms of the action, and I suspect this season will be more of the same. I've said before in this podcast that over the last decade, 
Pep versus Mourinho has been the coaching equivalent of Messi versus Ronaldo, but with Mourinho now fading, uh, I'll repeat again, I think this is now the matchup in world football from a coaching standpoint. Interesting, interesting. All right, changing of the guard when it comes to the marquee matchup there. You mentioned some things that we can debate, and, and you also mentioned the fact that there's there's no real outward animosity between the two, and it certainly hasn't manifested in any type of, of war of words, although they did go back a little bit in terms of the spending, and that, that's where it comes down to because when Pep was in Germany, he was at the team that spent the most and had the most talent. When Pep now is in England, he's at a team that arguably, I don't know, uh, not arguably, is spending the most money and certainly has the most talent. Now, for Jurgen Klopp to cry poor, that's, that's, that's definitely not it. But if you, had, if you had to, Mossy, would I be wrong in saying that just from a pure ability to spend and therefore, if you spend wisely, get the best players in the world, does Manchester City have more at their disposal and more resources at their disposal than Liverpool. And therefore, shouldn't that factor in when we are talking about these two managers? And isn't that a legitimate type of critique to level at Pep? Yes. I would argue right now Klopp has the highest approval rating of any manager in world football because, as you mentioned, with Pep, although I love him, there are some things you could pick at there. It is fair to bring up the fact that he's had great players and lots of money throughout his career. While Klopp, while Dortmund and Liverpool aren't exactly uh, small clubs, relatively speaking, the degree of difficulty is higher there. Uh, I've told this story before on the pod, but Jose Mourinho used to have this big complex about Klopp, thought he was overrated, didn't understand what all the fuss was about. And a couple of years ago, he attended a Premier League sponsors event and a Premier League bigwig was going to give a speech at the end of the night extolling the virtues of the Premier League, and Mourinho got wind that there was going to be a line in the speech that referenced the Premier League having the greatest managers in the world, from Pep to Mourinho to Conti to Klopp, and Mourinho made a point of making the guy remove Klopp from that sentence because he didn't think he belonged in that same class. Uh, so until recently, there still was this notion with Klopp, yeah, it looks pretty and he's likable and all that, but uh, the trophy count just doesn't uh, measure up to these other guys. I do think him winning that Champions League title with Liverpool has completely reframed that because now people look at his resume and we cover the Bundesliga. We've seen how difficult it is for somebody other than Bayern to win that league. And he did so two years in a row. It wasn't a fluke. It wasn't like they caught lightning in a bottle. For a couple of years there, they were a decidedly better team than Bayern. They beat him 5-2 in a German Cup final and he took Dortmund to a Champions League final and then he inherits Liverpool and that mess that they were in under Brendan Rodgers. And in a short period, he's taken them to a Europa League final and two straight Champions League finals and won one of those Champions League titles. And last season had one of the great seasons in Premier League history, one loss in 38 games, 97 points. It was mind-boggling. They didn't win the league. So I think people look at his resume now and they think, boy, he, he checks off all the boxes because you're right. He's done it at clubs that don't have quite the same spending power and you know, you look at the success he's had and it, with playing an exciting brand of football, making players better. So I think he ticks off all the boxes now more than any other manager in world football. I think he kind of stands at the top right now. All right. Well, let's cut to the chase then, Mossy. If it, it, right now, is Jurgen Klopp better than Pep Guardiola? Yeah, all things being equal, I give him a slight edge. Now, to be fair to Pep, I thought he actually made some salient points uh, this week in response to Klopp. Um, so what Klopp had said was that there are four clubs, Real Madrid, Barcelona, PSG, and Manchester City, that live in, as he put it, a fantasy land when it comes to spending. They're able to get whatever they want. They don't seem to have to abide by financial fair play. And so he was positioning Liverpool as sort of an underdog that's not on that level and has to fight against uh, those clubs. 
And as Pep pointed out, the notion that City are out there spending crazy money every transfer window is a bit of an outdated criticism. They signed one player last summer, Riyad Mahrez. They actually had a net spend of only like 20 million euros. And then they, as of us taping this, they've only signed one player this summer in Rodri. Uh, it sounds like they're going to get a, a second one, Joel Cancel. I'll talk more about that when we do our Premier League preview. But so they haven't been going crazy. And he actually pointed out that Liverpool last summer spent more money than City. So, I mean, Pep brought up some fair points in that discussion. Uh, but I think by and large, uh, I think if you look at their careers and, and, and not, not so much their career, but where they are right now, I think I would actually give Klopp a slight edge. And I'll tell you, I don't know if, if you got a chance to watch the Community Shield, but it illustrated again to me that Jurgen Klopp has figured something out about uh, playing against Pep Guardiola managed teams that nobody else has because City never seem as comfortable, never seem as in control to me against Liverpool as they do against everybody else. So there are some tactical things he's figured out there too that Pep is going to have to like figure out a way how to combat, which I think is going to make for a fascinating season. All right, well, hold on a second. Then then at the, at the very end here, let me ask you this. If you admit that Klopp has the slight edge, but Klopp is also working with less. Now, when I, when I say with less, I don't mean little engine that could. We all understand it. But it's relative, relative to Man City working and doing more with less. Then why wouldn't you say that Pochettino, who I, I think it's not even arguable, has done more with even less? Why shouldn't he be part of the conversation then? I think he's clearly number three. But um, I don't know. It just feels like... like Liverpool and City right now are clearly the two best teams in England, and so that sort of gives those two managers a, a platform that Pochettino, although he got to the Champions League final last season, I just think, you know, when I say it's the marquee coaching matchup in world football, it's also just from sort of a, uh, those two guys feel like the two most prominent figures in the game now, yeah. uh, you know, so... Yeah, I mean, but I, I love Pochettino. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about Tottenham as well in a bit. I mean, absolutely, he's, he's a great manager. Well, in this uh, evergreen type of debate, I, I think that Pochettino is hurt by the fact that he is not a bigger-than-life type of personality. The things he says, the things he does, the way that he acts, uh, even visually the way he is relative to Pep uh, and to Klopp, I think he's always not going to be looked at at their level. And so the only thing that he's going to be able to fall back on uh, ultimately is uh, the results. But this will continue on, my friend. Uh, I will ask you as we go along if, if, uh, if at any point uh, throughout the year either Pep goes ahead or, or Klopp uh, stays ahead or goes below, or if somebody, Pochettino or somebody else, finds a way to make themselves into uh, Mossy's uh, judgment as to who the, uh, the best matchup is when it comes to managers and coaches out there. All right, anything else, Mossy? No, that's it. All right, always enjoy enjoy your uh, Mossy Makes the Case there. Moving on. Ask Alexi. Okay, it's that time again, our hashtag Ask Alexi segment. You use that hashtag Ask Alexi on all the social media platforms out there. You send us a question, a comment, a concern, and then we pick out some of them, and uh, Mossy reads them out. Mossy, what do the people want to know, or what are they saying this week? All right, first up, at Gabe from NH. Who out of our you young? You think that's New Hampshire? Let's assume, yeah. Uh, who out of our young players abroad impressed you the most? Tim Weah and Josh Sargent both turned heads. So just an update on those two. So uh, Tim Weah moved from PSG to Lille this summer. Lille, who were the sensation in the league on last season, finished second behind PSG. So they will be in the group stage of the Champions League this season. They just sold their star player, Nicolas Pepe, to Arsenal. 
and it looks like Wea is going to get a chance to play there. Uh, he just scored a goal in a preseason match against Roma. And then Sargent, uh, who, as we know, was, was somewhat controversially left off the U.S.'s Gold Cup squad, but has had a very good preseason at Werder Bremen, uh, and it looks like he's, he's primed for a big role. You might have seen this past weekend, the Clips, they played against Everton, and he had a very good performance. He had one really nice run where he nutmegged Michael Keane, and so it looks like he's ready to go for the new season. So let's zero in on those two, Way and Sargent. Uh, what's your outlook for them this season and moving forward also with the U.S. national team? Yeah, I think this is born of the uh, of, of certainly the potential and the hope for a player, but also of the desperation right now to have somebody step up to take the reins. Uh, and that you know that's nothing against Josie Altidore, but people are are they want to see somebody new emerge. And these are a couple of players and names that we've talked about uh, talked about now for a while. And you know Tim Way has bummed bummed around. You know he got a uh, he got a goal against Roman. Uh, uh, what was it last week? And uh, you know it was a, a, re- a rebound. It wasn't a particularly great goal or a highlight type of s goal. But ultimately, he's there to score goals, and that's a that's a good thing. And we'll still see if this move helps helps him take another step. And speaking of taking another step, Josh Sargent, and this is where I think uh, it's going to be interesting because all the accounts and we and you mentioned his highlight reel type of performance the other day in, in preseason. But all by all accounts, he is right now the striker that is emerging from preseason. And there's been some injuries and there's been some different things there. But if he is starting, starting game in, game out in Bundesliga, obviously scoring goals, which is something that he didn't have last year and over the last couple of years, a consistency of play. He showed brief moments and shining type of uh, instances. But to have that consistency, I think that that, that Josh Sargent, if, if this goes... If this continues to go the way that it is going, I think that he can have a quicker type of tra- trajectory and therefore a quicker type of impact on the national team. Notwithstanding the fact that that Greg Berhalter left him out, uh, left, left him out this summer, and maybe that was by design, and maybe he lit a fire under Josh Sargent because there's there is a real opportunity for both of these uh, players, and it's good that we have two. It's good that we're not just talking about one. It's good that we can debate. Uh, going forward and you know we were talking earlier in the pod about the coaching matches uh, matchups and stuff like that well there's also player matchups oh there are lots of players uh, out there that challenge people and and challenge each other and make each other uh, better for both of these young players as for all young players there is an opportunity and if somebody steps up they can have that position they can grab it by the throat and once again Josie Altidore is going to be there, but if somebody young comes along that is dynamic, I think Greg Berhalter is going to gravitate to that person as opposed to what was successful uh, in the past. So they both have a real opportunity right now, and it's really early days. I would still say because of the info coming out that Josh Sargent is slightly ahead right now, but that can change with the blink of an eye. What else? Well, and just one quick note there, since we mentioned Sargent, we'll do like a full-blown Bundesliga preview next week. Uh, but I did want to mention something about the Super Cup, which I covered this past weekend with your buddy Rob Stone. Uh, Dortmund defeated Bayern yep. 2-0. And listen, there's still uh, some weeks left here in the transfer window for Bayern to do something. But I know it's a big statement I'm about to drop here. But as presently constituted, Dortmund have a clearly better squad and I think will be would be the favorites if, if the Bundesliga started right now and they also have the best player in the Bundesliga in my eyes in Jadon Sancho who by the way by his standards I thought actually had an off game this weekend and yet still completely 
tipped the balance of the match in the second half with a gorgeous assist and then a goal of his own. So this is like trending in Dortmund's direction right now. I think we all felt that covering the game this weekend. And Bayern really are going to have to go out there and make a big move or two. I know they're trying to get Leroy Sané. Um, otherwise, I don't know. I don't think they're going to go into this season with a whole lot of confidence. Dortmund have had a better summer. Frankly, I thought Dortmund were arguably the better team last year and just kind of choked away the title. And I think with the moves they've made right now, looking at those two rosters, I think it's a clear edge Dortmund, which is quite the statement when Bayern have won the title seven seasons in a row. But I honestly believe that. But we'll, we'll flesh that out more in, in, uh, next week when we'll do like a full-blown uh, Bundesliga preview. Moving on, at Film Guy Mike, a bit oddly worded here. He said, the name nobody is talking about but should be to take over for Joe Ellis, question mark. Uh, obviously Ooh. what he's alluding to there is Joe Ellis, uh, U.S. women's national team coach, will be stepping down soon after winning back-to-back World Cup titles. Uh, let's just phrase it like this. Uh, who do you think <laughs> are the leading candidates to take over there, uh, whether it's names anybody's talking about or not talking about? I don't know. I mean, but, but which, which, what's your reaction to Ellis leaving and who might replace her? Well, first off, I mean, she, she drops the mic and leaves as one, if not the greatest, uh, coaches, period and deserves a tremendous amount of praise and thanks for what she has done. And all she did was return this team to where it had come from many, many years ago. 16 years had passed before, between winning the World Cup in 99 uh, and then last World Cup, winning the World Cup, and then going out there and doing something that uh, only one coach has ever done before in the entire game, uh, winning back-to-back World Cups. So congratulations to her and what she has uh, accomplished, and this will be a wonderful lap of honor, if you will, for these last uh, few games. She won't coach next summer uh, in the Olympics. Uh, when it comes to who, who should take her place, it, it's a wonderful position, but it's also, I mean, <laughs> you're, you've got a lot to live up to when you're coming in. Now, uh, the rumors are that uh, the U.S. Soccer Federation is going to name that, uh, that women's team GM, and I think that's important to have that first because whoever that person is, you need to make sure that he or she is driving this decision. Uh, well, ultimately, when it comes down to it, you're going to have names that are thrown out there. Guy, uh, guys like Paul Riley, uh, people like uh, Laura Harvey, these types of things. In preparation for this, I actually sent out a text to my, uh, my good friends and colleagues, uh, Heather O'Reilly and Leslie Osborne. I asked them about a, a couple of different things, including people that, they, that maybe they were thinking of. And a lot of the usual suspects that we've talked about there uh, were, were on their lists and, and the recognition that this is a great gig, but it's also a really, really tough gig. Mark Kikorian, uh, Leslie uh, mentioned him down at, from a uh, coach down in Florida State. Uh, but, but she also was really interesting. She said some of these coaches, while it's a great gig, they also have wonderful gigs from a collegiate standpoint. And that should be uh, taken into account. It's not the easiest thing. It's much less security uh, than a, a, a college coaching. We have this, this situation a lot of times when it comes to uh, professional teams for potential collegiate coaches that could make the jump. That's a, that's a big jump, and it's not without uh, out some risk when you're going there. So I appreciate Leslie sending me some different things. And she had mentioned Paul Riley, who's on a lot of people's lists right now, um, coaching uh, North Carolina Courage. I talked to uh, Heather O'Reilly, who is playing for Paul Riley right now. She obviously didn't want to talk about that because that's, that, that's her boss right there. She mentioned Laura Harvey. She mentioned uh, her manager that she had at Arsenal, uh, Joe Montemuro and you know different people so i think there's a lot of names that are going to get get thrown out i'm actually even more interested to see 
who is going to be that technical director because the team has never had one. You're coming in and your first order of business is to hire this person that we are talking about. And you're coming in after two World Cups in a row. And what do you change and what can be changed? What, what should you change of this team that has shown that it's arguably the most successful sports team out there? And uh, I'm going to be interested to see. Rumors are out there. Kate Margraff uh, as a potential uh, technical director. And ultimately, it's going to be whether it's her, it's her, whether it's anybody else, their decision to, uh, to figure it out. But it's going to be it's going to be fun. We got a bunch of games coming up uh, this fall uh, with this uh, with this tour that the U.S. team is on right now. Uh, and we'll all be looking at what happens next summer in the Olympics, because uh, unlike the, the men, you get the opportunity at to play in the Olympics and the Olympics are a huge, huge part of the women's national team program and the women's national team history. And it'll be fun to see this team, what it looks like off the field in terms of that technical director and that coach, but also on the field and who makes it from this incredible success that we just saw over this last summer in France. All right, moving on, Mossy, what else we got? Uh, We'll end with one. I think you'll get a kick out of uh, at LA galaxy outsider, uh, best hall and Oates track. FYI, any mention other than Private Eyes is wrong. <laughs> Private Eyes is a wonderful song, absolutely. Uh, I'm going to go a deep cut here, uh, a song called Wait For Me. I just think it's a beautiful song. Uh, you can check it out and, and pull it up. It's not something that that people who don't know a whole lot about Hall & Oates would, would have an idea about. Uh, you're absolutely right that Private Eyes is a wonderful song. Hall & Oates, for me, are, are one of the best songwriters, performers the production of their uh, of their uh, of all of their albums is second to none they're master players they surround themselves with great musicians i love hall and oats and while they sometimes get get, get uh, you know lopped into this 80s mtv and they certainly came about and had great success with with videos and all all of that kind of stuff they are so much more than that uh their their vocal ability their writing ability their longevity is just something something to behold and and you know you mentioned private eyes you can put on their hits and everybody regardless of age, regardless of how deep or, or not they are involved in music, they will know the songs, and that's a testament to how, uh, how great they are. So best track is a song called Wait For Me. You can go check it out. All right, remember to use that hashtag Ask Alexi out there on all the uh, social media platforms uh, when you are sending questions and comments and concerns. And who knows, maybe in the future when we do our Ask Alexi segment, David Mossy will be reading one of your questions or comments. All right, moving on. The Back Three. All right, it's that time again for the uh, Back Three, a time when we look at some big stories and games and moments. Mossy, uh, what's in our Back Three this week? All right, we start out with a little Premier League preview. The season kicks off uh, on Friday. And uh, a reminder, uh, the Premier League, they've moved their transfer window up so it ends before the start of the season. So it actually closes in a couple days. So uh, teams running out of time if they're going to make moves. And it's interesting because until very recently, Aston Villa, newly promoted Aston Villa, was the club that had spent the most money. United surpassed them with the Harry Maguire move. But I'll start there. You know, I was reminded again this summer, obviously the big clubs in England spend money, but they don't spend any more than, say, the Barcelonas, Real Madrid's, PSG's, Juventus. You really see the financial muscle of the Premier League by how much the middle and bottom teams are able to spend and the caliber of players they get. 
Uh, I mean, for a club like Aston Villa to spend what they did, it would be unthinkable for like a newly promoted team in Serie A or the Bundesliga to spend that kind of money. So I found that interesting. But sort of a larger big picture question about the Premier League. Uh, although relative to the other top leagues in Europe, we, we think of the Premier League as being more competitive. There is some concern about the gap that's opened up between the big six and the other 14. It'd be interesting to see if that continues this summer. There's kind of the second tier that's emerged right below the big six of like Wolves, Leicester, Everton, West Ham. And it'd be nice to see maybe one of those teams sneak into the top six and maybe be able to finish ahead of, of one of the traditional big six. I don't know if uh, you see that happening this season, but let's dig into the big six. Now, do you want to, first of all, a little reminder on, on who's playing where in Europe? Uh, this season? Yes, yes. So the four Champions League representatives are Manchester City, Liverpool, Chelsea, and Tottenham. And then the three Europa League bound clubs are Arsenal United, who are in the group stage already. Wolves are right now uh, in the midst of qualifying. They're hoping to get in the Europa League group stage. So that's where we are going into the season. I'll start at the very top. I mean, we just just talked about Pep versus Klopp. I think City and Liverpool, clearly the the class of the field again this season and and are set to duke it out. And one of those teams will probably be your Premier League champion. Uh, What's your sense there? Uh, City finished one point above them last season after this epic race that came down to the last round. Who has the edge? Do you think Liverpool, that momentum from having won the Champions League, they can sort of parlay that into finally breaking through in the Premier League this season or you think City still takes it? I think that City still takes it and I think that Liverpool experiences a regression. I mean not crazy regression or anything like that. I think they I think Liverpool this year struggles more than Man City to live up to what they did. So there you go. I think that I think that happens. Yeah, it's interesting. Liverpool have have not done anything notable in the transfer market besides swapping backup goalkeepers in the last couple of days with Mignolet leaving and Adrian coming in. They're banking on guys like Oxley Chamberlain and Joe Gomez who were injured for a lot of last season being healthy and also somebody like Nabi Keita having a, a better second season. City haven't done that much, but I actually think they've nailed the two moves they've made. I love this midfielder they've added from Atletico Madrid, Rodri. I think uh, Pep has found his Busquets there. I'm a big fan of it. I know he kept things nice and tidy this past weekend, but once he settles in, He'll be a little bit more adventurous with his passing. He's a very, very good player. I watched a lot of him with Atletico last season. And then this isn't official yet as time of taping, but it looks like they are going to be able to swing this deal with Juventus uh, where they're going to get João Cancelo and send Danilo the other way. I love João Cancelo. I think he's one of the best right backs in the world. Now, you have Kyle Walker there, so I don't know how Pep's going to make that work. But still, he just adds another weapon if he arrives to that squad flying down that right wing. So actually, City have improved themselves more than Liverpool have this summer for what that's worth. But in, if forced to pick, I'll go Liverpool. I just got done extolling the virtues of Klopp, and I think this has all been building <laughs> under him with them finally winning a Premier League title one of these seasons, and I, and I think it's going to be this season. As far as the rest of the top four, I think you, you have to give Tottenham the benefit of the doubt under Pochettino. He's just found a way consistently to finish in the top four, and, and unless until he gives me a reason to doubt him on that front, I'm going to keep picking him. So that would leave one other slot open for Arsenal, Chelsea, and Manchester United. And I just got, I just got done saying hopefully some other team like Leicester or Wolves can, can jump into that fray. But let's assume it's going to be the traditional big six again. Do you have any sense, Arsenal, Chelsea, United, which way you would go there? I would go... Uh, what's Chelsea playing in? Champions League. Oh, that's the problem. Arsenal. Gonna, yeah, Arsenal. Gonna, Arsenal. I got. I had a. Uh, I had a conversation with a, a man uh, at the hotel uh, in in DC, and uh, I'm only saying that because listening to him talk about Arsenal, and yes, there's 
there's passion and there's the heart over the over the mind at times but he convinced me he convinced me that that, that this is going to be look not a invincible type of year but a year where the arsenal folks are going to be vindicated is maybe also a too strong word but be pleasantly surprised and and they made a big move for nicolas pepe who i mentioned in the ask alexi segment uh left lil to go to arsenal plus um there are a couple of days left in the transfer window they're still trying to add a center back and possibly get coutinho on loan from barcelona so they, they've been very aggressive here they also got danny ceballos a midfielder from real madrid on loan who i like a lot so i think there's some pressure on unai emery this season to finish in the top four now obviously the europa league offers another avenue so i'll say there's pressure on him to get back into the champions league whether it's by finishing in the top four or perhaps winning the europa league arsenal the last two seasons have gone to the semis and the final of the europa league so clearly it's a competition that if they try and they can go very far. Uh, so he's got sort of two cracks at it again. But I think Arsenal need to get back in the Champions League here with what they've done this summer. I think there's some real pressure on Unai Emery. As far as the other two clubs, Chelsea are fascinating to me because, and I've got a Chelsea superfan Alex Dowd staring at me right now, wondering what I'm about to say. For the first time ever under Roman Abramovich, there's a real sense that they're building for the long term and maybe not in this crazy win-now mode. They've brought in Frank Lampard, you know, obviously a club legend who Abramovich isn't going to be able to just blow out in a few months if he doesn't like what he sees this season. He's going to have to be patient with him. You know, he's a guy that's only managed one year at Derby County. Uh, more on Derby County and coaching in a second. So you've got Lampard there now. You've got this transfer ban, so he wasn't able to uh, strengthen all that much. You lose Hazard, and it sounds like Lampard is going to be relying on a lot of young players. It, 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 Tammy Abraham, they brought back on loan, is projected to start at center forward. It's going to be him or Giroud. You've got guys like uh, this Mason Mount, who was alone with Darby last season, and Hudson Adoy and Ruben Loftus Cheek when they come back from their injuries, and of course Christian Pulisic, who is the one big newcomer. That's a lot of young players. I don't think Chelsea can sort of realistically adopt this sort of crazy win now mode they've been in for for the better part of Abramovich's reign there. He's going to have to be a little bit patient here, and so I think Lampard is building for like three, four years down the road, and so it's 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 a bit of a departure from what Chelsea's been, but it's so. That's going to be interesting. And, and, you know, I'll say this on Pulisic. He got everybody excited with that preseason performance against Salzburg. He's had a very good preseason overall, but that performance in particular was stunning. He scored two beautiful goals. But I will say, we've also know what he's, what he's been at Dortmund. This cannot be a season where he shows flashes and you can see that he's a talented player, but we look up at the end of the campaign and he has five goals. I think if Chelsea are going to be good this season, they're going to battle for a top four spot. They're going to need regular production out of him in the form of goals and assists, which is something he struggled with at Dortmund. So that'll be interesting to follow as well. I mean, what, what's your sense about Pulisic at Chelsea right now? Yeah, somebody asked me the other day, how many goals is Pulisic going to score this year? And I said nine. You think nine would be acceptable? Yeah, nine if there's a, a, a decent share of assists in there and, 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 he, and he plays well. I think nine is an acceptable number. Nine Premier League goals, we're saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nine Premier League goals. Yeah, but uh, yeah. but I, I think, you know, I think... Um, I think Frank Lampard kind of hit it on the head of what Christian Pulisic is. And when we say what he is, it's always, it's always well, when he's healthy. So first off, he's got to stay healthy uh, and be a consistent player and a, a consistent available player. Secondly, when, when Lampard talked about this is a guy that takes players on and is always looking to go forward first and take players on. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not you know, sitting here comparing him to Hazard or anything like that. But that was what got people out of their seats and made people stand up a little bit because Hazard took players on each and every time he got the ball, especially when you string him out wide. So if he's doing that and he stays healthy, he can be an absolute menace 
and, and such a huge, huge asset. And, and, and I know my red, white, and blue heart wants it to happen, as do a lot of American fans for a number of different reasons. But I think if you didn't even know who he was or where he was, where he was from, you would very, very quickly say, hey, if this guy can do this on a consistent basis and put the fear of God into outside backs for whatever team that you're playing, regardless if it's a, a super uh, elite type of team or anybody else in the table, that's a, that's a good thing. I just worry, as I always worry, and because of that history, does his fragile nature when it comes to injuries and missing time because of injuries come into play? And what we all know is a much more energetic and physical type of league. And, I, and that was always the question when this, when this transfer happened. But you know, if they can find a way to get him that consistency to protect him even from, uh, you know, from, from problems that could arise being in that physical type of uh, situation. I think, it can be, I think it can be wonderful for Chelsea and wonderful for everybody that's watching and people that want to see players who take players on one-on-one because unfortunately that, that's, it's not a lost art, but it is done so rarely nowadays with, with the tactics and just the way that the game has, uh, has evolved. And I'll say this about Manchester United. It's all fine and good signing a player from Leicester, especially if you're willing to pay this crazy fee for him. But you could really see uh, how much allure they've lost in this whole Dybala situation. They were ready to swing a deal. Uh, first of all, the very fact that Pogba and Lukaku apparently can't wait to get out of there and are dying to leave Manchester United. And then with Lukaku, they were going to swing a deal with Juventus with Paulo Dybala coming the other way. And Dybala wanted no part of it. He made these outrageous contract demands, basically in an effort to sabotage the deal. It was kind of the Frank Sinatra approach. Whenever Sinatra would get offered a movie he didn't want to do, he would ask for a crazy amount of money, figuring, hey, if they say yes, I guess for that money I'll do it. And if they say no, it's something I didn't want to do anyway. So um, I think Dybala sort of took that approach here. And United sensed that, that he really wasn't uh, really that keen on going to Manchester. And so they've, uh, the latest that they've pulled out of the whole thing and you could just kind of see that it's just not a destination anymore that the top, top players are that. It, it feels kind of small if you're like a major world-class player. I know that that's hard for Manchester United fans to swallow because 10 years ago, a guy like Paul Dybala would have, would have killed to go there. Uh, but I, I just think that's kind of where United are at right now, though they did manage to hold on to Pogba and Lukaku as of now. Uh, they do add Harry Maguire at the back. So, and, you know, Solskjaer there for a full season. Who knows? I mean, <laughs> what, 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 do, you, do you get any sense of which way this season could go for Manchester United? Because I think it could really go either way. Yeah, I, as much as I said that I thought uh, that people were going to be pleasantly surprised uh, for, for other teams, I don't think that they're going to be pleasantly surprised. And you're not telling them anything they don't know. And they might not, and maybe it's hard for them. It's not hard for them to swallow at this point because they've been swallowing it now and they've gotten, they've gotten used to it. You are just telling them what they already know, the reality of the situation, that there are players that don't want to be at Manchester United, says it all. That's what this, this team has become. The dysfunction internally is manifests on the field, the lack of any type of real structure and belief and any, any type of uh, posture that says we are a great club. Now it's all, we once were a great club and, and the mighty have, have fallen and it's, it's, it's amazing, it's fascinating to watch, but I don't see them getting up anytime soon there'll be times where people will say oh are we back are we back but we've we've been through that before right now and I still think they have they they have a ways to go before they come out the other side 
All right, so ending with Chelsea and United makes for a perfect segue for our next topic. Manchester United legend Wayne Rooney uh, in the news today. He has, in fact, uh, agreed a deal to leave D.C. United at the end of the season and join Darby County. And it sounds like it's a player-slash-assistant coach role. Their manager they brought in to replace Frank Lampard, who uh, almost led them to promotion last season and then went to Chelsea. They brought in Philip Koku, the former Dutch international. So he's the head coach there, there now. And Rooney will go there in January to play and to be an assistant under him. Apparently, Rooney has coaching aspirations of his own. And so this is kind of the first step towards that. So, I mean, we'll start out from obviously an MLS perspective. Uh, what's your reaction to Wayne Rooney, who's been such a hit here? I know you you famously, in a controversial interview with TMZ done at LAX Airport, <laughs> said that this signing didn't move the needle for you, but certainly you, you'd agree that he's been a home run signing, revitalized that whole DC franchise, correct? He's He's been wonderful, and I am uh, I'm happy that he has been because he came at the perfect time for... DC United, talk about a once proud club. Um, they they basically had a reboot, almost a rebrand, um, with the new stadium and with Wayne Rooney and the results on the field, the incredible iconic type of moments that he provided that will live long in the memories of DC United that we're only going to get him now for a season and a half and he'll leave with two years basically of his contract is a little bit of a head scratcher and then but then you start realizing and the way that he's talking about it that this is a this is a personal move for him it's not that he doesn't like playing in DC it's not that he doesn't enjoy MLS uh, and it's not necessarily that he individually doesn't enjoy living in uh, in the United States and playing in the United States but so often we're, we're so focused on the one person that we forget that there is a whole other family out there and his, his wife and his children, and it can be incredibly difficult and challenging to adjust to, it's not necessarily a new language, but oftentimes it is a new language and a new culture. And while you as the player get to get up every day and go and do what you love to do and have a place to go and have a job and have a sense of who you are in this new culture that is very, very different, Others, your significant others, uh, don't always have that, either by design, um, whether it's they, they want to work but they can't work, whether it's they have to deal with a new, uh, new language, a new culture. And so I think, I think if you read between the lines, and you don't even have to read between the lines for this type of thing because he's, he's, he's been talking about it, this is done for, for his family. And in that sense, I'm, I'm happy for him because this is just soccer ultimately and your family has and should be more important than that he has opportunities is because he is such a a star but if you're dc united right now and yeah you got a a a year and a half out of him and who knows how it ends up this year it's uh, you're going to be left wanting more and you're not going to get that now the interesting thing is and stephen goff of uh, the washington post has been reporting that uh, this is going to be possibly a free transfer out of the goodness of their heart and maybe to get the big money off of their books that they would have to pay him if he continues on, they're just going to call it, call it a day and let it go. Now, and, and out of a belief to give this person what he wants, who has, even in a short time, still given a whole lot to the club. That's, that's all fine, fine and well, but are you, in doing so, doing a disservice to your club that has to continue on and to, com- uh, to compete if you're not going to find a way to get some money out of this? Because you came with the knowledge that he was going to be there for three years. 
and that didn't come to uh, fruition, not because you don't want him there, but because he does not want to be there. And so I'm, it's really in interesting to see how they justify it. As I said, I'm going to be in D.C. again this weekend, D.C. against Los Angeles Galaxy. Last weekend, we were scheduled to speak to Wayne Rooney, and uh, it's not something he, he's ever done before, but he pulled out of the interview, and this is for obvious reasons. Now we, we know what happened, why this, uh, this type of thing uh, happened. Well, uh, uh, one final thing, though, on this. I hate the player-coach type of thing. If it's done just to pay the player more, that's fine. But be one or the other. Because the last thing that I want as a player is to have my quote-unquote teammate also being a coach. The dynamic is just completely thrown out of whack, and I just think it, it is fraught with peril and problems. If you want to be a coach, then go coach. If you want to be a player, then be a player. And like I said, if it's done for financial reasons, then fine. But make it very, very clear from a practical standpoint when you walk into the training ground what is going on. This is either a coach or this is a, this is a player. And to mix them, I just think, is really problematic. A few things for me. First of all, you mentioned the family. Steven Gerrard's wife and kids evidently also had a lot of trouble settling here in Los Angeles. And it's interesting how... In some cases, after that, that living in that pressure cooker of Europe and England, families like relish the tranquility of coming here to the United States and, you know, where you can be a professional soccer player here and it's not as crazy. While there are others that just don't take to it at all. They're so used to their life there in England, whether it's in Manchester or Liverpool, and then the, the change, they, they just don't adapt at all. It's kind of interesting how it can go either way. I do think also... There's sort of this, you know, MLS is sensitive about this idea of being a retirement league, and there's this general push towards signing younger DPs, a lot of younger South American players you see coming over now, but you still have enough of these, like, Rooney and Zlatan cases where it shows you, like, the benefits if you can actually, like, hit a home run with, like, a established world-class player coming from European football. So I think as long as you still have enough of these success stories like Rooney and Zlatan, you know, there's still going to be sort of this philosophical battle uh, for which way you should go there. And there's still an argument going to be made for like the the uh, virtues of signing like a Wayne Rooney. And in fact, you know, all the names I've seen mentioned that potential replacements that DC could get from Rooney are like along that same vein. I've seen like Ozil and Balotelli. So it sounds like they might go uh, that route again. And then, you know, it's interesting that this whole uh, golden generation of English players have all want to try their luck at coaching. And Gerard, we mentioned Frank Lampard, John Terry, and now Wayne Rooney. So that's kind of interesting as well. It's going to be interesting to see over the coming years, like which one of those guys becomes successful coaches and which which don't we'll end on this you already mentioned already so you can kind of flesh it out more mls uh double header on sunday la galaxy versus dc united we just talked about and then lafc versus the new york red bulls uh what are you looking forward to in those games Fun double header here. Uh, as I mentioned, going to D.C. with Zlatan, who missed last week's game uh, with suspension, so he'll be back in the fold. And evidently, the Galaxy, if you watch them get uh, get beaten up uh, in Atlanta, they can't win without Zlatan, so he's, so he's back. But let's be honest, this is going to be now in the context of the knowledge that Wayne Rooney, this is it. He's leaving at the end of the season, so there is no more. Does it put a pressure on him in a good way to say, look, I'm going to finish up strong. How does it psychologically affect other players like Luciano Acosta, who there's a lot of rumors about him going, uh, Paul Ariola, these types of players. And you mentioned, what does DC have now? What are they planning on doing? You do have 
a succession type of plan, but I don't think DC United was prepared for halfway through the contract, Wayne Rooney saying, I want to go. So they, I, I bet you they're, they're having some very, very long uh, and important meetings as to what are they going, what are they going to do? Ola Kamara uh, is a potential to get signed this week, whether he's available on the weekend. I don't, I, I don't know uh, for DC. I'm talking about, you'll remember Ola Kamara was the odd man out when Zlatan came to the LA galaxy uh, Ola went overseas, came back, he, and there's a potential for him to be at D.C. That would be interesting if he was actually on the field now playing against Laton and the Los Angeles Galaxy, but playing for D.C. United, especially with all of the stories that are going on. And then LAFC is the cream of the crop when it comes uh, to Major League Soccer, and they just continue to prove how good this team is under Bob Bradley. They went into New England, who had been on a 10-game uh, streak without losing uh, the whole Bruce Arena era had kicked off with full effect, and they did it with a smoke and a coffee, one 2 nothing without a problem, and just showed how good they are, the class of the league right now, which means they're definitely losing in the first round of the playoffs because that's usually what happens. But right now, it's fun to see, and anytime LAFC plays in Los Angeles in that wonderful stadium that they have, it's just uh, it's just must-see, whether they're playing there or any, anywhere else because of how dynamic and entertaining and ultimately successful they are it's really really a um, they have the potential to be the greatest MLS team that ever played in terms of the results that they're getting but also the way in which they're getting results and it was just last year that we were talking about Atlanta being that but what LAFC has done under Bob Bradley is something to behold and so if you get the chance to behold it check it out great double header with all sorts of stories on and off the field this uh, this weekend this Sunday on uh, FS1 that's it. I have to say, to do a Premier League preview that ends on Manchester United, right into the Wayne Rooney story, right into a DC United preview, this is actually a well-constructed rundown by Alex Dowd. Well, you know, uh, as Thomas Rogan always used to say, whenever I would score a goal or something, even a blind squirrel catches a nut every once in a while. So uh, well done, uh, Alex and everybody there. Well, we come to the end of yet another State of the Union, and at the end of each State of the Union, I give you my one big thing. We started off the pod talking about Alejandro Bedoya, and his actions and statement uh, and how it resonated, not just with the soccer community, but all over our country and our world, given the horrendous events and the pain and suffering and you know, questioning that uh, we are going through as a country. Uh, he has, at times over the last few days, been called uh, courageous for doing this. And I don't want to speak for him, but I think that he would, as I did, bristle at that. We live charm lives as professional athletes in terms of what we do, what we are paid, the opportunities that we are given, and uh, the recognition that a very, very small percentage of people ever get the opportunity and the privilege to be, uh, to be doing that. To be called courageous for saying something like that in that moment. I get where that comes from, but in a moment where this week we saw mothers and fathers covering their children from bullets, where we saw people running towards these incredible acts of violence to help people that they didn't know, to help people and to risk their own life, that's courageous. That's, that's courage. And there are hundreds of more examples that I could give of real and true courage, whether it's a man and woman on the street, uh, whether it's armed services, whether it's all of these different things. And an athlete talking about the pain and the ills of the world 
while I know it's not traditional and while I know it certainly does take a certain type of individual to be to do that because of the knowledge and the understanding that there is going to oftentimes be backlash uh, from making statements, especially if they are statements that are provocative uh, and or political in nature. That's that's not real courage. Okay. Um, and the recognition and the knowledge that you know, we are in that privileged position as, as athletes, I don't think that that is lost on any of the athletes. Well, maybe it is, but it's certainly not lost on a intelligent uh, and a thinker, the likes of which uh, Alejandro Bedoya is. And I think he understands that. I hope he keeps speaking about this. I hope he keeps making us think about these things. I hope, hope he keeps using the platform and that privilege that he has to try to affect some change and to try to do things that are good for our country, our country, whether you're a professional athlete or, or, or anybody else, it is our, uh, our country. And um, I hope that the change that comes is swift and it does do things to give us a safer type of environment. Um, Probably not going to happen anytime soon, but when I think about who we are as people, who we are as, as I mentioned in the State of the Union, humans, uh, who we are as fellow Americans and all that kind of stuff, um, it, uh, it fills me at once with, with sadness because of the things that we have had to go through, but it also uh, fills me with pride because I think that there are people out there people like Alejandro Bedoya that can be part of the solution, part of the answer to get us out of the problems uh, that we have. And not because he's a professional athlete, uh, but because he cares like so many other people across our country do care about where our country is going, what it is going to be, um, and about ourselves, about our families, and about our fellow Americans out there and the country that we live in. All right, Mossy, anything before we go? Uh, no, that's it. All right, hit us up out there uh, with those hashtag Ask Alexi questions and comments on Twitter and Facebook and all the different platforms out there. We appreciate each and every week uh, you tuning in. I'm going to be on the road here for uh, another week, so I'll still be on the road. And as I mentioned, we're going to come back uh, at the end of August from our digs in Los Angeles, uh, hopefully with a updated and a uh, throw a coat of paint on the, uh, on the studio's and the aesthetic will be improved to give you the type of podcast that you deserve, the improved and the evolved type of podcast that you uh, deserve. Thank you for your patience and understanding uh, as I am and continue to be on the road. Um, and thank you as always for tuning in each week to the State of the Union podcast. Thank you, David. Size the day. 